Good morning, church. Right, today's passage is uh, chap- uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through to 31. So please uh, follow along in the order of service, or if you've got a Bible there, um, please feel free to do so. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with inequity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies dead. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure inequity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come to them. 
Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will rescue your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broke together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. The strong shall become tinder and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. Be grateful if you kept that open, uh, the passage in Isaiah near you. You'll be aware if you watch the news of things unfolding in South Africa this week. We've got a number of people in our church family as well who are who have friends and family there are from South Africa. Um, two things to take note of. The one is on Wednesday evening at 6.30, there will be a prayer meeting at the Budgham Uniting Church um, for South Africa. Particularly if you'd like to join that, be part of that, everyone's welcome. 6.30 at the Connections on King Building opposite the Coffee Club in Budgham. Uh, you can go along to that. Um, I think it would be a great time to be praying together about the needs of our world. So it's not just limited to South Africans. Anyone can go along. Um, but if you'd like to pray together with others about the situation there, that would be great. Um, also, I was in touch with a, a pastor who's a friend um, in that area, particularly in uh, an area called KwaZulu-Natal, where a lot of the rioting is happening uh, yesterday. And he says it is like a war zone. Um, and they're very concerned for their churches in the disadvantaged areas. Um, and he's... If you'd like to contribute financially to the relief efforts um, to a, a good evangelical gospel ministry going on over there, um, please let me know and I'll put those banking details uh, in your inbox for you. Well, we are beginning a new series in the book of Isaiah, so I'd like to pray for us and then we'll get underway in Isaiah chapter 1. So let's pray. O oh God, we pray that you would guide us now by your word and your spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and in your will that we may discover peace. And we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As we get underway in Isaiah chapter 1 this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. And the question is, what are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? And look, I don't mean things like spiders or needles or the dark or your mother-in-law. I mean, what do, you, what do you fear the most in your life? I mean, there may be lots of reasons to fear. You might fear losing your health or losing your freedom, losing your job, uh, losing your financial security, uh, maybe losing a relationship, maybe even losing your life. Maybe you fear a secret being exposed. Or maybe you fear the, the, the forces that are at work in our world unseen. 
And look, I think all those are scary things, and fear is is a natural response to those things. But I wonder if the God of the Bible is on your list. Because as we move into the book of Isaiah this term, we're going to meet a God who had, or we're going to meet a people like us who had lots of reasons to fear. Uh, You know, they were living in a world that was like a pressure cooker ready ready to go off. We're going to discover all about that as we go on. Lots of reasons to fear. But, you know, looming large above all those scary things was a God who deserves to be feared because he is God. He is the holy, righteous creator and judge of the entire world. And, you know, our our fears, they usually have a significant bearing on what we try to trust in, where we put our faith, where we turn to for security. So I'd like to ask you another question, especially considering the fears we thought of, and that's, what are you trusting in, in the face of those fears? Where is your faith? Because if our fears are mostly about physical things, temporal things, material things, well, uh, I think our faith... Our trust is usually in those sorts of things as well. We start to trust in uh, our wealth or our employability or our our efforts at our own health or our own fitness or our own financial security or in medicine or politicians or lobbyists and activists. We put our faith in those places. But again, I wonder if the God of the Bible is on the list of the places where you place your trust. Because in Isaiah as well, we're not just going to meet a God who deserves to be feared We're going to meet a God who deserves to be trusted. Precisely because he is the holy, righteous creator and judge of everything. Because of that, he is also the only one who can save us. And so no matter what you believe, or where you come from, who you are, when it's all over, the Lord God Almighty is going to judge every single one of us sitting here today. But he is the also, also the only one who is ultimately capable of saving us. So I'd like you to keep that in mind, this uh, tension between fear and faith, as we move into Isaiah this term. We're going to start in chapter 1, and we've broken this down into four sections this morning. You'll find the outline on your order of service. Uh, it'd be great if you could follow along there. It's a space for you to take notes as well. As we get into chapter 1, we've got a very helpful introduction in verse 1. And of course, we've got to wait until, the, until chapter 6 before we find out how Isaiah got into this ministry in the first place, how he ended up being a prophet. Chapters 1 to 5, though, they really do start with a bang. I wonder if you kind of got that impression as Laz was reading it a moment ago. The first verse of the chapter, though, does give us a little of what we need to know to help us get our bearings. So have a look at that first verse with me. It says... The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So there we're told what this book is. It's a vision. God has shown Isaiah certain things about the present and about the future, which he is to proclaim to God's people. And this is, of course, this is the work of the prophet, really. It's to tell the people what God has shown them so that they can change their behavior in the present. That's, that's the work of the prophet. We're also told then what the vision's about. 
It's said that it's about Judah and Jerusalem. That's the kind of focal point of just about everything Isaiah is going to be saying. Just to explain, we've got to remember that in Isaiah's time, which is about 700 years before Jesus, the great united kingdom of the 12 tribes of Israel under David and Solomon, that doesn't actually exist anymore. So if you're watching on the live stream, there'll be a map up on your screen right now. Sorry to everyone else in the room. Uh, You can find this map uh, on the introductory notes, which are in the study guides folder. The link for that went out on Thursday with the email. But after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. Uh, This was in judgment on Solomon's sin. And ten of the twelve tribes went north. They established a new kingdom of Israel around the city of Samaria. And two of the tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they remained in the south around Jerusalem as their capital, and they established the kingdom of Judah. This happened around 922 B.C., Uh, These two kingdoms were often in conflict from then on as well. So Isaiah's vision is primarily, but not exclusively, but primarily focused on the southern kingdom of Judah around the city of Jerusalem with uh, the temple and its kings who all came from David's family line. And so then we're told about who the kings of Judah were in Isaiah's time. There's another little diagram that'll come up on the screen for those watching. Um, where the kings are listed. And you've got those four kings there, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about each of those kings uh, so we can understand what what life was like in Isaiah's time. In chapter 6, we're told that Isaiah started his ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. That was about 740 B.C. Uh, You can read all about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. The thing to know about Uzziah is that in his reign, Judah flourished. Uh, The GDP went up, lots of infrastructure was built, significant projects were commissioned, uh, the military was expanded. Um, We're told that Uzziah actually invested heavily in military technology uh, and built, uh, he invented siege engines. Uh, Quite an interesting guy. Uh, But this was a nation you didn't mess with. They were small but they were actually doing very well for themselves. And Uzziah was a godly man too. He, he credited the Lord with his kingdom's success for the most part though. Because towards the end of his 52-year reign, stable, prosperous, long reign, towards the end, he becomes proud. And he kind of thinks to himself, well, you know, I'm such a great king, I think I can be a great priest as well. And he goes into the temple to do the sorts of things that only the priests are allowed to do. And 80 priests turn up and say to the king, you can't do this. And he says, well, tough, I'm going to do it anyway. And God afflicts him with a skin disease. And he lives alone for the last eight years of his life. Uh, We're told that his son Jotham, he took over the day-to-day running of the kingdom uh, until Uzziah died, and then he became king. And Jotham, over 16 years, a king of Israel. He follows the Lord. It says uh, that he doesn't go into the temple, but he follows the Lord. And then when Jotham died, his son Ahaz takes over the throne. Also 16 years under Ahaz. Now, Ahaz, by contrast, was a complete disaster. The defining characteristic of his 16-year reign was faithlessness absolute and utter faithlessness. Now, in this time, you've got to know that the the Assyrian Empire, 
was emerging as a dominant force across that part of the Middle East. But rather than trust the Lord, Ahaz puts his faith in defenses, in military alliances, and in foreign guards to protect himself from the Assyrians advancing across the Middle East. And when Ahaz finally dies, his son Hezekiah comes to the throne, and he does a much better job than his father. And he he restores Judah's religious life, which had all been dismantled by Ahaz. And Judah prospers again. Uh, Hezekiah even stands up to Assyria and trusts the Lord, and the Lord delivers him. But in the end, his pride becomes his downfall as well. Because rather than trusting the Lord completely, he he hedges his bets with an up-and-coming new kingdom called Babylon. And of course, if you know the story, Babylon becomes uh, Judah's undoing in the end. So all this to say that Isaiah had a very long and prosperous ministry. Um, It lasted about 50 years. We can kind of say... um, until about 686 BC. And it begins in a time where Isaiah, sorry, where where Judah has enjoyed peace and prosperity. Life has been really good in Judah and Jerusalem for the most part over those years. But there was now tension on the international scene and this caused fear in Judah and its leaders. And the fear led to a successive, successive crises of faith. Who they would fear and then who they would trust as a result is, I think, one of the major themes of the whole book. And as we've said, this is this tension or this um, relationship between faith and fear, which we're going to see unpacked across the whole book. And this first chapter shows us that despite or even maybe because of prosperity, peace and comfort, the fears of God's people have been misplaced. And as a result, actually, their faith has also been misplaced. So let's move into verse 2 and 3, because that, after the introduction of verse 1, it takes us straight into the opening scene of the first act. What we find here is we've got a courtroom drama going on. The Lord is both the judge and the prosecuting attorney, and the defendants are the people of Jerusalem and the people of the nation of Judah, which are God's own children. Imagine that, the judge's own children turning up in the dock. And what's the charge? Well, the charge is rebellion. This came in again in the chapter. So look with me at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's like calling witnesses to come and testify. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. So against all experience and against all reason, God's people have rebelled against him. Excuse me. And, you know, the, the charge is quite cutting as well. It says that, you know, even, even animals know better than to turn on the farmer. The language of children is meant to sting a bit. It's supposed to bring to mind the kind of language of the Exodus, where the Bible says that God took his children by the hand and drew them out of Egypt and led them to the promised land. But they've rebelled. 
The good and easy life that Judah has enjoyed for so long has lulled them into a false sense of security. And they've given up on the Lord. You know, isn't it so often the case that the Lord's blessings can often be the biggest threat to our relationship with him? It's not because there's anything wrong with God or anything wrong with his blessings, but we've got this kind of recurring bad habit of of putting our trust in the blessings instead of putting our trust in the one who gives them. We fear, actually, we fear losing the blessings more than we fear losing our relationship with God. And this is exactly what Judah has done. They would rather rebel than their trust away from the blessings he's given and towards himself. You know, it's striking that human nature hasn't really changed in 2,700 years, has it? Easier to worship the gifts rather than the giver. So that's the charge. The charge is rebellion against the Lord God, their father, their, their savior, their God. And the rest of the chapter from five, five onwards presents us with the damning evidence. This is the third point in our outline uh, that backs up the Lord's case against Judah. And, you know, in verse five, you know, you, you get a sense of the Lord's, he's, he's compassionate. He's concerned about the, the, the one in the dock. He pleads with them about how illogical their situation is. Their rebellion is almost masochistic in verse 5. It's like they're the punch-drunk boxer who doesn't know that they should really sit down and stop taking the hits. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? You see, sin has gone in everywhere and it's infected the whole kingdom. And the picture is of an ugly disease which has started in the head, which is probably a reference to Judah's leaders, actually. But it's spread throughout the body like a spreading cancer. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. It's a, it's a disgusting and ugly picture. That's what sin does. And their rebellion then is seen in three particular areas of national life. We're going to see uh, the evidence coming up in their political life, in their religious life, and finally in their social life. We'll, We'll go through each of those in turn. So first area of sin for Judah is in their political life. You find this in verse five to nine. Because they've been trusting in their political connections rather than trusting in the Lord. And you know, Judah's sin cost them dearly. I think the context of this particular charge seems to be Assyria's invasion of Judah and their siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC. So King Ahaz, king number three in Isaiah, he decided to pay tribute to Assyria to protect himself from Israel and Syria, so the, the two little kingdoms to the north. So he would, it was like a protection racket where he kept paying the the big guy uh, to protect him against the little guys. One commentator says it was actually a bit like a mouse trying to make a deal with one cat to protect himself against two other cats. And eventually, the cat turns on the mouse. So during the time of Hezekiah, uh, Assyria comes down to teach Judah a lesson. The Bible says that they took all all the fortified cities of Judah All the major city centers uh, were captured by the Assyrians and they drove their army up to the gates of Jerusalem, 
ready to take Jerusalem as well. This is the daughter of Zion in verse 8. But you know, verse 8 also has this really strange image of a lodge in a cucumber field or a booth in a vineyard. What on earth is that about? I remember the first time I read this, I think I didn't hear the next few verses because I was still scratching my head about this lodge in a cucumber field. To be able to picture this for ourselves, we need to keep in mind that in Isaiah's time, at harvest time, people would go and build temporary shelters out in the fields so that they didn't have to waste time each day coming home and going back to the fields and coming home and going back to the fields. And they would use these little temporary shelters during harvest time, and when the harvest was over, they'd abandon them and leave them. Uh, and they'd kind of, you know, start falling down and decaying after time until so they were kind of patched up the next year ready to be used again. So you can imagine then what a miserable and lonely and pathetic sight it was. And with the Assyrian army encamped all the way around Jerusalem and all its other cities taken, yes, Jerusalem must have looked like an abandoned, dilapidated shack sticking out like a sore thumb in a spent field of, of cucumbers, low-growing plants. Judah was brought close to extinction by their sin, and it's so close that the image of Sodom and Gomorrah comes to mind. Those are those two cities in Genesis 13 that are going to be forever associated, I think, with terminal sinfulness and God's total destructive judgment. You know, how far have God's people fallen that there is very little discernible difference between them and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? That's where their political rebellion has got them. Well, the second major area we find in verse 10 to 20, and this is their religious rebellion. God's people were meant to have a special relationship with him. But on the outside, everything's still... They're offering sacrifices, they're coming to the temple, they're having gatherings, they're celebrating different religious feasts and festivities and, and festivals, they're praying. But it's all empty because they'd rebelled. So despite all the outward religiousness, verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they're utterly estranged. So in verse 10 to 20, they are not listening to God's word. They're hearing it, they're not listening. Their sacrifices are nothing to the Lord. He doesn't delight in them. Their visits to the temple are more like trespassing. Their worship is all about themselves. It's vain, verse 13. We even get the impression later in 9, you see, when it talks about those, uh, those oak trees and the gardens, that Judah was actually involved in a bit of pagan religion on the side, a sort of fertility religion, uh, maybe just to you know, hedge their bets in case the Lord doesn't come through for them. Very religious. But empty, half-hearted religion, no matter how good or spiritual it looks on the outside, is an offense to the Lord God. It's like going to church and reading a Bible and praying and ticking Christian on the census form but having no real relationship with God and Christ. The Lord has had enough. He will not listen to their prayers anymore. Of course, in verse 16, there's a note of hope. And we're going to turn there in a moment. But for now, notice that Judah's got blood on her hands. And it doesn't just come from the multitude of sacrifices they're making. It also comes from how they are treating each other. So this is the third area, social rebellion, from verse 21. 
You know, I think the language really makes us want to cringe. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Leadership are corrupt. Widows and orphans, the vulnerable of society, are ignored and oppressed. The rich get rich while the poor get poorer. And that kind of justice, justice which would have reflected God's righteous rule amongst his people in his city, well, that checked out a long time ago. Verse 23, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. And this, you know, this is a theme which is going to come up again and again in Isaiah, how the, the weak and vulnerable of society are treated. But just to note, a return to social justice is not the solution ultimately. But it will be a consequence of a right relationship with God. So as we look at those charges, you know, it's, it's worth reflecting for a moment on the scope of God's issues with Judah. It's easy to think that God only cares about the spiritual life of his people and that the social and political life of of a nation is not God's place. But that's to misjudge God's authority, the extent of God's rule. If Judah is his people, then he has the final say over all aspects of their life as a nation, the political, the social, and the spiritual. And he's the same God today. You know, God doesn't just care about what we do in church on a Sunday. He actually cares about what we do Monday to Friday as well, where we put our faith in at those times and how we treat others in those times as well. Because he's God. Let's go to our final section then. The verdict, verse 24 to 31. What is the verdict that God pronounces on his people now that the evidence has been heard and has passed uncontested? Well, let's look at verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. You see, God will judge their sin. He will get relief from his enemies, and he will avenge himself on his foes. But who are those enemies and foes? Look at verse 24 again. I will turn my hand against you. He's talking to his own people. You see, God must judge sin. He cannot ignore sin, even among his own people. Rebels and sinners cannot escape God's judgment. Verse 28. And yet, this judgment, amazingly, is not going to result in the annihilation of God's people. But what it will result in is their purification. That's that's what the language is there all about. Um, 
smelting away your dross. That's removing the impurities in a metal. And that's because the Lord has a plan that he is working out through his people. And it's a plan that will work out because he promised it would work out. We heard about this last week when Casper preached on Genesis chapter 12. And all through our last term series, God has a plan that he is going to work out. And it's a plan which does not ultimately depend upon the perfection of his people. But it is going to result in the perfection of his people. That's an important distinction. And you know how, how he will do that remains to be seen. We'll see that more and more as Isaiah is, uh, is unpacked. But for now, it's enough to know that what God will do will be completely just. Sin will be justly dealt with. And his people will be redeemed by righteousness. Verse 27. The price, in other words, will be paid in full for sin. And this is important because it's about God's personal integrity. If God simply ignored sin or turned a blind eye, how could he claim to be a God of justice with the final authority over the world? But if God is simply a God of justice, how could there be any hope for his people or for anyone for that matter? And how could he even work with any sinful people to bring about his total plan? But this is where verse 18 to 20 comes in. Because not only is he a God of perfect justice, he is also a God of perfect mercy. So look with me at verse 18. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And and just a note, this doesn't mean like me and the man upstairs are going to have an understanding. I get to do this stuff and you won't get upset with me. It's not that at all. He's saying, use your head. And realize who I am. That's the kind of reasoning that God is calling his people to. And what does he say? He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. The Lord has spoken. So there's, there's a choice, basically. And you love the language there. It's the choice is eat or be eaten. But the Lord is available to receive those who repent, those who turn away from their sin and turn back towards him. His door is always open and he offers full and free forgiveness. I don't know how he's going to do that at this point. It's enough to know that it will be just, will be righteous. But when we get to chapter 7, we're going to be introduced to an important figure in the first section of this book. Someone who is crucial in bringing about this just dealing with sin and the saving of the forgiveness of God's people. Uh, And his name is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. So you're going to have to wait until we get to chapter 7 to see all this unpack. But just for a moment, just a little spoiler alert, it's actually Jesus. Well, as we come to an end... I think this first chapter hits pretty hard. It kind of feels almost, you know, you you want to get into a new new series, a new bunch of studies. It's like we've stepped out the door and we've stepped in something the dog left behind, straight out the the gate. It's, It's ugly and it's appalling. It's uncomfortable. But that's because sin is like that. 
Sin is an offense against the king of kings, the one who made us, God. It's deadly serious. And so as we close, I'd like us to notice two particular things from this chapter. And the first thing I'd like us to notice is that the Lord's own people are the ones under judgment. The Lord's own people are the ones under judgment. I think it's easier to read these parts of the Bible and these kind of terrible pronouncements of of punishment for sin and to distance ourselves from what's going on. We kind of look down our noses on God's people from almost three millennia ago and say, ah, what bad people. What a dog's breakfast they made of things. Isn't it wonderful that we have Jesus now? You know, or, or we think that God's judgment only applies to those people out there, you know, the kind of, you know, lefty, liberal, ABC News reading, um, rainbow flag-waving, secular humor, screening, murdering, abusing. You, you know, you get, you get the picture. People who support New South Wales. <laughs> I'm joking. You know, but we, we kind of think, oh, it's, it's the people out there. They're, they're the ones who deserve God's judgment. But that's not what this is about at all. In Isaiah 1, it's not those people out there who are part of God's judgment. It's, it's, it's the people in here. God's judgment is directed towards his own people. It's not the Lord's relationship with the people of the world which is in view. It's the relationship he has with his own covenant people. And it's their sin which is calling into question the genuineness of that relationship. We are God's people today, and we must remember that the Lord cares deeply how we live, about our behavior and our holiness. And you know, the biggest issue for us as Christians today, just as it was for God's people back then, is whether or not our faith will be proved genuine by how we live under God always been the biggest issue for God's people and it's different today. Whether or not our faith will be proved genuine by the way we live under God. You see, Isaiah is not calling us just to be offended at injustice or to a kind of sanctified virtue signaling or to a kind of reverse cancel culture or trying to you know, protect our way of life against a flowing tide of secular culture. He's calling us to examine our own lives to repent of sin and to return to godliness. The problem is not out there, it's in here, in our own hearts. And a right fear of the Lord and a right faith in him is the only solution. So let me say, if your personal godliness and your relationship are not the most important issues, your biggest priorities, the driving concerns in your life, then nothing else actually matters. So that's the first thing I'd like you to notice, that the Lord's own people are under judgment. Secondly, though, the next thing I want you to notice is that the Lord must judge in order to save. The Lord must judge if he's going to save. Now, we touched on this in our last point already, but I want to be very clear about it. If we believe in a God who won't actually act against sin, then we don't believe at all in the God of the Bible. If we don't believe in a God who will actually act against our sin, our personal sin, then we don't believe in the God of the Bible. He can and he must judge, and if he did not, he would not be God. 
So the Lord must judge, and in fact, judgment must fall if anyone is to be saved and forgiven. The price has to be paid. But only if our sin has been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ can we hope to be saved. All other options are laid out for us very clearly here. Rebels and sinners shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. But the Lord says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He can only say that because of what he will do with Jesus. You know, I must say, reading that, it almost sounds a little like an ad for a washing powder. But imagine a washing powder that doesn't just bleach the stains, that it's kind of always a bit visible there, but actually removes every last particle of stain from the very fibers of the clothing, gets in there and just removes it completely so that it'll never come back and it'll never be visible again. That's what God does with our sin, friends. Because he doesn't just turn a blind eye, he doesn't ignore it, he doesn't just give us like a token wrap over the knuckles. He sends Jesus to the cross to pay for it. He sees the full extent of our sin and he absorbs the cost himself. Jesus is the sacrifice which satisfies God's judgment at our sin. And because he does that, he can offer us full and free forgiveness. So I certainly hope that as we look at this first chapter of Isaiah today and in our groups in the coming week, that you meet a God who is worthy of fear because he is not fooled and he is not blind. He can and will judge every single thing you have done wrong, every way you've broken his law, every time you've ignored him or rebelled against his rule over your life. He will judge. But I also hope and pray that this fear will drive you into his loving arms in deep faith and assurance that no matter what you've done or no matter how deep the stain of your sin runs, that the Lord has made your sin whiter than snow because of what he's done justly and righteously through the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear the Lord. How about we pray? You might want to take a few moments just in the quietness of your heart to reflect on these words that we read today. Maybe you need to do business with the Lord yourself. And in a moment, we'll, I'll, I'll lead us in prayer together.